So I want you to place yourself into one of two categories. Would you consider yourself a rule follower by nature or a rule breaker by nature? And after you think about that, think about your kids for a minute. Which one of your kids? I, I've got one of each. I've got one child who is just a, an ultimate rule follower and one who they just might as well not even exist. Would you say you're a rule follower or a rule breaker? Because I am a hopeless rule follower. Like it's just the way that I was created in my nature. Like if I buy something at Ikea and there's 101 steps to do it, I have to do the 101 steps. Uh, I think playing sports um, kind of taught me to be a little superstitious, get dressed the same way, do things the same routine. You know, I used to say I wasn't superstitious. I just believe doing things the exact same way every time would result in a, you know, the exact same conclusion to uh, what was happening, but I think through that I kind of developed a little bit of OCD nature. Um, so I, I've got some bad OCD tendencies. Like if I've got money in, in my pocket, like dollar bills, like they all have to be facing the same way. Is anyone else like that? Like when a cashier hands you bills and they're just flipped, I mean, it just kind of freaks me out if they're not all facing the same way. Um, when I have a pin that like has a cap that you can take off, um, and I take off the cap and put it on the end, like I have to line up the cap with the letters or it just doesn't write the correct way for me. Like I, you know, it's, it's just a little bit in my OCD. Like I have to listen to the TV volume in, in segments of five, but like no more. I can listen to the volume at 10 or 15 or 20 or even 25, but not 18 16, 17, I just struggle doing that. We'll be laying in bed and I set the TV at five and Danielle's like, you know, she's trying to fall asleep. She's Christian, can you turn it down one or two? And I'm like, no, I can't. Like that's not in my DNA to do. Like I can turn it off or I can turn it to 10, but it's, you know, it's gotta be, like it's gotta be at that, at that number. Even with air conditioning in the house, it's got to be some, it's gotta be a five or a zero in my house or in my car. I'm just kind of freakish like that. Uh, and I learned that I really got thrown a few weeks ago. Um, I went to grab a pair of socks. And do any of you have socks where they've started putting the L and the R like on the socks? You had a left sock and a right sock. I pulled some socks out of the drawer to put them on and I undid the socks. I think my little girl Casey had put them together and they were two L's. And I just thought, this is just not going to work. I can't wear a left sock on my right foot or that's just going to feel weird all day long. So for 10 minutes, I looked for a right sock. And I'm pretty sure they're the same. I mean, I looked, I looked at them for a while, but for 10 minutes, I looked for a right sock before I finally had to wear two left socks. And it bothered me all day long. Every time I looked at my right foot, I knew I had a left sock on it. And it bothered I'm just I'm just kind of a weird you know, obsessive, compulsive rule follower. But I found out in my 20s that being an obsessive, compulsive rule follower made me a horrible Christian. Uh, Because when you are a rule follower spiritually, sometimes you can get so stuck on following the rules that you forget to have a relationship with the ruler who set the rules in the first place. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. As we get ready to dig into our text, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you have our our Journey Church app, you can fire that up. That has all the Bible text. It has all the notes. Pull out the sermon notes from your bulletin so that you can follow along this morning. But in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus speaks to what I would call an obsessive-compulsive rule follower. Uh, 2,000 years ago in Israel, religion was much more about following the rules than following a person. 
And as Jesus begins to have a conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees, these were actually two separate schools of religion that had different rules. One thought they were smarter than the other. Um, when you read through the New Testament, you see Jesus in constant conflict with Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law and keepers of the law. When you read through the Bible, you see them as smug self-righteous jerks, to be very honest with you. They're always down on Jesus' disciples. They're always down on Jesus. And they, they are just the consummate rule followers. They really don't care about people. They just care about rules. And maybe that has been your experience with Christianity. Like maybe all of your life experiences with Christians are with people you consider to be smug, self-righteous kind of jerks because they care way more about rules than they care about people. And maybe you have even run from, you know, church, Christianity, spiritual things because you think, I just, you know, I'm not a keeper of rules. It's not in my DNA. I'm a rule breaker, not a rule follower. Somebody came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 and said, what's the most important rule? And Jesus kind of bypassed the question and he laid out two principles for life about loving God and loving people that are just awesome that I want to share with you today is I talk to you about what I believe are the most important things for anyone to know spiritually. Matthew 22 lays it out this way, starting in verse 34, we'll go through verse 40. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? For the Pharisees and Sadducees, they had created hundreds and hundreds of commandments. They had taken the Ten Commandments, and they had expanded those into more than a hundred commandments. So this guy was kind of showing off how smart he was. And he basically said, hey, Jesus, which is the most important commandment? So of all the commandments in the Old Testament, which one would you say is the most important? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, all of the law and the prophets, those two words, law and the prophets, they kind of summarized all the Old Testament. Jesus said, everything in the Old Testament that you have created hundreds of commandments for, if you can just remember those two things, love God and love people, you're going to be fine. If you love God and love people, you're going to keep most of the commandments. Jesus answered this question simply. He answered this question straightforward. And in this simple three-verse and in this simple three verses, he preached a sermon that we now know in the church as the great commandment. Jesus, in three verses, said, here are the most important things in life that you need to know. And as our church tries to follow Jesus, one of the cool things that you need to understand is there's not a list of hundreds of rules for following Jesus that he wants you to know. There are really two things that are the most important things spiritually, and we read those in the great commandment. And here's the deal. If you've been a part of our church for a long time, this is going to be a great reminder of why we exist and what our purpose is as we meet every Sunday to try to learn how to love God, to try to be directed in how to love people well. If you're brand new to our church, this is going to be a good introduction for what we're really, really passionate about, trying to figure out how to love God and trying to figure out how to love people well in our community because we believe Christianity is way more about relationships than rules. And Jesus promised that people who'd been worn out chasing religion would actually find rest in his simple commands for life. Maybe you've come in and you're a little tired spiritually. Maybe you've come in and because you haven't been able to keep the rules of religion, 
Um, you, you know, you, you try, you're, you're wondering if Christianity is for you. But Jesus promised if you want to connect to him in a powerful way, that connecting to him would actually bring rest to your life. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So 2,000 years ago in Israel, when a, when a rabbi showed up, a rabbi was a, like a religious teacher, um, their teaching would be called a yoke for this reason. If you can picture oxen that have a yoke kind of set on their neck, a teacher would, would bring a teaching that would set the direction of your life. So a rabbi would come and they would say, hey, the rabbi has a new yoke. The rabbi has some teaching that he wants to lay on you to set the direction of your life. And most of the teachings were very difficult. They were very heavy. They were very burdensome. Jesus showed up and said, mine's different. He said, my yoke is really easy. My burden is really light. If you just learn to follow me, your life will actually get better. You see, following Jesus should make the burdens of your life lighter. And following Jesus should make your life better. But what does it look like to follow Jesus and do the most important things first? What is a type of life where somebody's engaged living the great commandment look like? Well, I want to show you three things that I believe draw that picture for us. One, when you live life in pursuit of the great commandment, it's a life with Jesus at the center. It's a life where Jesus is at the center of your life and of almost everything you do in life. Look at Jesus' command again in verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The heart symbolized what you would feel. The soul symbolized what you believe deep down. It was your worldview. Your mind symbolized how you think. Jesus says, I want to be in the middle of how you feel. I want to be in the middle of what you believe. I want to shape how you think. I want to be in the very center of your life. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is at the center of your universe? What's at the center of your universe? What does your life revolve around? What touches every area of your life? Maybe it's your kids' sports. We're at an age, my wife and I, my son's a freshman, my daughter's in seventh grade, and it seems like, there's, it seems like a lot of our life revolves around our kids' sports schedule. Maybe it's their academic schedule. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your career. What does everything in your life seem to be impacted by positively or negatively? Because I believe what's at the center of your life is more important than what's at the front of your life. Jesus didn't say, I want to be at the front of your life. Jesus said, I want to be at the center of your life. Do you know when we look at the Bible, we learn that God doesn't lead from the front. He leads from the center. There's actually a tremendous picture of this in the Old Testament tabernacle that God shows us. But here's why I believe God wants to lead from the center. And I'll explain this picture to you in a minute. You know, when God is at the front of your life, there might be a lot of things kind of in the back of your life that he never gets to touch, that he never gets to be a part of. But when God sets himself down in the center of your life, he touches every area of your life. He touches your family. He touches your work. He touches your hobbies. He touches your habits. He, he touches your relationships. He touches your finances. When your world revolves around Jesus, every area of your life is impacted by him. So when God came down to be with people, the Israelites, if you've seen Prince of Egypt, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. When they were wandering around in the desert, they struggled to find God because they couldn't see him, touch him, feel him. So they said, God, we want you to come down and be with us. We're not sure you're here unless we can see you. 
So God said, okay. And he came down and he said, I'm going to, basically, my presence will be in the tabernacle. But he didn't say put the tabernacle at the front of Israel. He said, put the tabernacle in the middle of Israel. And then he said, I want you to build every house in the 12 tribes of Israel where the front, front door faces the tabernacle. So the first thing people see every morning is the presence of God. The last thing they see every time they go into their home is the presence of God. And literally, they can't go anywhere without realizing that everything revolves around the presence of God. Let me ask you, does your life revolve around Jesus? Do you get up every morning and the first thing you see every morning is something that has to do with Jesus? Do you every night before you end the day and go to bed? Is your last thought every night something that has to do with Jesus and something spiritual? God wanted to be at the center of Israel so that he could be at the center of their life. And inside the tabernacle, the tabernacle was a really interesting place in the Old Testament. The tabernacle is where you came from cleansing when you just felt messy and dirty spiritually. Some of you have walked in and you kind of feel that way. You, you struggle to stay away from church because the things you do Monday through Saturday, they just make you feel less than kind of spiritually clean. The temple, the tabernacle is where you go for cleansing. The tabernacle is where you go for forgiveness. When you said something you shouldn't have said to your wife, when you treated your children in a way you shouldn't have treated them, when you got into an argument with your neighbor, when you needed any type of forgiveness at all, you would go to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is where you could go for daily bread if you had some kind of need. They kept 12 basically fresh-baked rolls at all time, um, fresh bread loaves in the, temp, in the tabernacle. So if anyone would have a need, they could go there and have their need taken care of. The tabernacle was where you came for prayer. It's where you went to talk to God. The tabernacle is where you came for mercy. Mercy is undeserved favor. Mercy is that thought when you need something from God, but you know you don't deserve it and you ask him anyway, what you're asking for is mercy. God, I know I made a really bad mistake that caused this decision, but if you could help me with this, you're basically saying, would you in your mercy, even though I don't deserve it, would you show me favor in this area? Mercy could be found in the tabernacle. And if you wanted to connect to God, it happened at the tabernacle. And the New Testament says that Jesus was represented by the tabernacle. So the tabernacle represented Jesus who, like in the Old Testament, was in the center of life. Jesus wants to be at the center of our lives. So when we started our church, we said, okay, what kind of strategy can we put together to help people keep Jesus at the center of their life? How can we shape a strategy that allows people in the course of their very busy life and job and parenting and relationships and hobbies and habits, how can we give people a simple strategy that helps them grow spiritually develop spiritually, get strong spiritually, and keep them pushing towards the great commandment. And we came up with what we called the four E's. We said, you know, these, when you look at the life of Jesus and his disciples, when you look at Jesus and the church, these were the things happening that helped people stay focused on Jesus, these four E's. The first E is experiencing worship weekly. From the first week of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there was a day set aside every week that simply belonged to God. And all the way through the New Testament, from the birth of the church through the book of Revelation, there was a day set aside that belonged to God to recenter our lives on worship and the Word of God. Let me ask you, how sacred is your Sunday or how sacred is a day in your week that's set aside for God? And it's really interesting, less than 50 years into the church in the New Testament, there was a group of people who decided, I can love Jesus and not go to church. I can follow Jesus and not go to church. 
I can follow the great commandment without ever having to go to church. And the author of Hebrews wrote to that group of people and said, wait a minute, you're really going to struggle if you try to live a life pursuing the great commandment, but you don't have a day in your week that belongs to Jesus. The author of Hebrews said it this way, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people are doing, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. The author of Hebrews said, for those Christians who think that you can really stay close to Jesus without ever going to church, we've got to encourage each other that there's got to be a day, an activity, a time where our lives can be centered around Jesus. I think we've got the best model now that our church has ever had to allow people to connect on a weekly basis to what our church does. We've got three services on Sunday morning instead of two. We've got our app that you literally can carry on your phone. We have people who, when they're out of town, listen to church on their way to work or on the way home from work. Do you know last year 20,000 people downloaded sermons outside of church on Sunday mornings? Nearly 300 people a week who do church with us who don't even sit in these seats because of something that's taken up their time on a Sunday morning from time to time. You can make a decision to put Jesus at the center, but you might have to rewire your life to do that a little bit. You know, last week, if you were here, it was a little warm on Sunday in this room last week. And we called out our guys and said, man, what, like, what is wrong with this place? We're preaching about heaven, but it feels like hell. Like, you know, it's like, it's a tough day. So they went up on the roof. We've got two units that cool this room, and one of them wasn't working at all. It had completely shut down and was gone. So we were trying to cool this room with half of what needed to be cooled down with. So they had to rewire some things. They had to, they had to work on some things. They, they had to rewire some things to get this room working correctly. And some of you are living in a life right now that just feels like constant pressure, constant sweat, constant stress. It's like there's never a chance where it just gets comfortable in your life to step back and sit down. You need to rewire your life so that there's a time during your week where you just kind of get comfortable spiritually and let the ministry of Jesus come to you. If you want to live the great commandment, you've got to have Jesus at the center of your life. But secondly, you've got to have Christians in your crew. It's a really interesting point that I don't know that I would have preached seven years ago before we started this church. And let me tell you how I got here. It was this realization in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Do you know that before Jesus gave the disciples in-depth Christian teaching, he gave them up-close Christian community? With a group of about six pastors that were starting churches the same time that we were, one in San Diego, one in Houston, uh, one in Atlanta, myself here, and a couple others, we studied what Jesus did with the disciples to allow them to develop spiritually, and then we studied what the church did with new Christians to allow them to develop spiritually. And we said, what does that look like to try to do that in our churches? And the first step was always the same. Someone connected with Jesus. But then when you looked at Jesus and the disciples, Jesus connected the disciples with himself and then with each other. Like before he had a Bible study, before he really began to teach them theology, before they even really began doing ministry, step one was connect with Jesus. Step two was connect with some other people who were connected to Jesus. Step three was go start serving people together. And then step four, while they did that, on a day-to-day basis, they learned the deeper things of the faith. So many times we think if someone makes a spiritual decision, what's their next step? Well, they need to go to a class and they need to start learning you know, more things. And learning is great. Knowledge is great. Direction is great. But more important than what you learn is who you do life with. 
So you've got to have Christians in your crew. So the second E of our four E's when we say, how do you keep the great commandment? Well, we want life to have Jesus at the center, but then we want to have Christians in our crew. We want to engage in Christian relationships. We all need, if we're going to live the Christian life. Now, if you're not a Christian, I'm going to talk to you in just a minute about this. But if you're a Christian, like you really need Christians to help you live your life towards the great commandment. Our verse as a church that kind of supports this point is a key verse from a very, very sad life. It's from a man named Solomon. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Ecclesiastes has been called Solomon's deathbed diary. He's at the end of his life. He's just reflecting on life. It's what, it's what he would have written at 70 or 80 or 85. And he writes this, speaking about himself. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. And there was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes weren't content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Solomon said, I looked at my life and I was all alone. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have any brothers. I just kept working and I thought, why in the world am I working for all this stuff that I can't even share with anybody? So he said, this is meaningless. It's miserable. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they're going to keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The wisdom of Solomon said to have Christian people in your life helping you spiritually will really help you hold it together. But his own life experience said, but I didn't have that. And I look back now and I made a mistake not making time for people. You know, when you study the life of Solomon in Scripture, you read about his wealth. He's very, very wealthy. You read about his wisdom. He's pretty sharp. God blessed him with wisdom. You read about his accomplishments, what he built, what he did, all the business he did with other nations. You even read about his girlfriends and some of his relationships. You know what you do not read in the life of Solomon anywhere in Scripture? You don't read anything about his friends. And he wrote a lot of Scripture, which means he either didn't have any friends or he didn't have any worth writing about. As a matter of fact, the only mention he had of friends was of his miserable existence without him and how if he could have done it over again, he would have worked less on other things and he would have invested more time in people. It doesn't appear that he had any friends. I think what makes this even worse is that his dad, his dad who was his role model, his dad who would have been his hero, his dad who would have been his mentor, David, Like if you know even a little bit of the Bible, you know David killed a giant named Goliath. But then you know about David's friendships. He had a friend named Jonathan who was like his best Christian friend and really helped him through the trials of trying to learn to become a young Christian man. And then you know about David's mighty men, 31 people. When David writes about all the things he accomplished, David said, I want you to know it was because of these 31 people. These are the Christian friends. These are the Christians in my crew that allowed me to fulfill the purpose of God in my life. It's these people. You know, the study of Solomon's life doesn't find any mighty men around him. His dad had a bunch. He had none. And when we read through the legacy of Solomon, there's really not much there that followed him. It's interesting, when we go to Israel, we've been four times as a church. You see all the great things of Israel and all the great history of Israel. They don't ever mention Solomon. They literally don't even mention his name. The temple that he built, which was the grandest in all the world at the time, they just refer to as the first temple. Because the legacy of shame that he left in failure, and in Ecclesiastes 4, he said a big part of that is I didn't take time to have any Christian 
friends. You see, I believe that to love God long term, like you were created to love God and fulfill the great commandment, you have to have Christians in your crew, even if you're not a Christian. Some of you are in here today and you're not Christians. Every Sunday we have people come to our church who are kind of just checking this thing out, but they wouldn't consider themselves Christians yet. And what better place to study Christianity than at church, right? Like this is like the zoo for Christians, right? Like if you're not a Christian, it's like, you know, this is where you see Christians in their natural habitat. And you can like, you know, just sit back and look and watch and see what's going on, see what they're doing. And, you know, I'm, the, I'm like the active animal up here. And then there's some sleeping ones out there. I mean, it's like, you know, it's just like the zoo. But when you begin to have Christians in relationship, it's kind of like a petting zoo. Now you get to see like up close and personal, touch and see and feel what a real Christian looks like and acts like and reacts like. I'll never forget when we started our church, having some people who came to our church but weren't Christians and they were, I mean, just very sincerely not Christians who started coming to small group. And like we would have Bible study discussion and like they'd say, okay, like I'm not a Christian and I don't believe that. But is it okay for me to, like, come and just listen to why you believe that? Like, can I just sit in and learn from you what you think Christianity is about? I think the most valuable thing you could do if you're not a Christian is to join a small group of Christians and sincerely say, I'm not a Christian, I don't even know if I believe what you believe, but I just want to get to know some people because I feel like you, even if I'm not a Christian, you might care about me better than anyone else does if I really have a need. You know, I had a man walk up to me after our 10 o'clock service with tears in his eyes and said, man, your sermon really got to me. He said, why? He said, I don't have one Christian friend. You know what's sad about that? There's a lot of people in here who could say the exact same thing. I don't have one Christian friend. Everyone I work with, everyone I hang out with, everyone I live with, I don't have one Christian friend. It's hard to pursue the great commandment without having Christians in your crew that help you do that. It's hard to really celebrate life spiritual. I kind of lead two small groups, our staff at our church and our elders. And last Monday, after we were celebrating grand opening, I texted all our staff and said, hey, let me buy you lunch and let's just celebrate yesterday. And we went and had lunch together. And I said, just tell me the one thing yesterday that you're just still celebrating the most, the one thing that will stick with you forever. And, and our staff just said, they, we laughed and we cried. And just as we shared together, it, it was just to be together with some Christians in my crew celebrating, it just made it so much sweeter. Next Sunday night, our elders will all have dinner together. We'll talk about the five-year journey that this church has been. And we'll say, man, let's just talk about what God has done. I can't imagine as a pastor having grand opening and then going home and not having anyone to celebrate with or talk to about it. I need Christians in my crew. And I believe you do as well. So if you're going to pursue the great commandment, you've got to have Jesus at the center. You've got to have Christians in your crew. But number three, you've got to have people in your heart. You've got to have people in your heart. As Jesus answered the second part of this question, the guy asking for one command, Jesus actually gave two. First command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. But he said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus said the second is like it, he was saying in its importance spiritually. When it comes to things being spiritually important, loving God is really important, but at the same level, loving people is important. Now, someone gave a good follow-up question. They said, well, who's my neighbor? Like, they're on the right side or left side of my house? Like, the guy across is like, which one is my neighbor? And Jesus told a story that we know is the parable of the Good Samaritan to answer that question. Jesus said, here's how you know who a neighbor is. 
said a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's traveling east towards the Jordan River as you're leaving Jerusalem. It's all downhill. You literally could ride a bike without pedaling from Jerusalem all the way to Jericho. It's straight downhill. Trying to get back, good luck. Like you have to ride a donkey or something. But he said he was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He got robbed, he got beaten, he got left for dead on the side of the road. And he said a priest walked by. Priests live their lives to serve and to help people. Saw him laying beside the road, but he wasn't on duty, wasn't on service. He was a professional helper, but he was not a good neighbor. He walked on, left him. Then a Levite came by. Levite was another professional temple worker. Probably had this guy come to his church, he would have helped him. But just being there on the side of the road... Saw him and passed him by. Didn't think anything about it. He said, then a Samaritan came. Well, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Um, just the, the intermixing of their religion and their races over a period of four to 500 years, it just caused they just hated each other. But he said, a Samaritan came by and he saw this guy lying half dead in a ditch. He took care of him, took him to a hospital, paid his bill, made sure he got healthy. So then Jesus turned the question around. He said, which one of these do you think was a neighbor? And I guess, well, obviously the, the guy who helped the hurting person. And Jesus said, that's right. And Jesus taught us that loving our neighbor is basically seeing the hurt in people and being able to help them. But I've learned it's one thing to see a person who's hurt, and it's another thing to see a person who's hurting. You have to look deeper to see one. It's one thing to see a person who's hurt. I love football. I'm so glad college football started yesterday. The NFL will start next week. Um, I follow football teams and the football news. And last week at practice, the Minnesota Vikings quarterback, Teddy Bridgewater, dislocated his knee so badly in practice that they thought they were going to have to amputate his lower leg. It got dislocated so badly um, and was so gruesome. They said the dislocation, the sound of the injury, the agony of him laying there, they said his teammates saw it and they began to get physically sick and throw up on the field because the injury was so grotesque. If someone in here had a dislocated anything today, we'd recognize it easily. But do you know there are people sitting beside you and in front of you who have a dislocated spirit this morning? You can't see it, but their heart is dislocated. Their marriage is dislocated. Their relationship with parents or children is dislocated. What's happening at work between them and their boss is dislocated. Like... There's no blood flowing to life in a certain area of their life. But because they're hurting and not hurt, we look at the smile on their face rather than the dislocation in their spirit, and we think they're fine. We look at their big personality rather than the dislocation in their marriage, and we say they're fine. We look at, you know, kind of the outside demeanor instead of the brokenness that lives in their relationships, and we say they're fine. And and we kind of, it's like, hey, if somebody's hurt, Great, let me know. But we don't live with people in our heart and the reality that everyone is hurting in some way. And you know, when you look at the third E of our church, we've got this E. When we look through the New Testament, we see that anyone who got associated with Jesus embraced serving people. Like it was just a natural reaction that when you got close to Jesus, somehow you recognized hurting people And you served everyone just so you wouldn't miss anyone. So we said our church, as we pursue the great commandment, is going to embrace serving people at our church. We're going to embrace serving people in the community who will never come to our church. And we're going to embrace serving people around the world who will never even come to America. Why? Because people in our community need people who care. 
people in our community and in our city need churches who care. I read a story last week about a 15-year-old boy from England named Ollie Jones. Ollie has autism. And two weeks before his birthday, his mom walked into his room and she saw two cards that were written to Ollie. I think we've got them on the screen. They were written to Ollie, but she recognized Ollie's handwriting. So his mom, Karen, went to her son and said, you know, Ollie, what are these cards? And he said, well, my favorite thing on my birthday is to open cards. And I knew that nobody would write me one, so I wrote myself two so that I could wake up on my birthday and open cards that were for me. His mom, Karen, was so moved that she sent out a message on her Facebook, and she basically said, if any of our family and friends would be willing to send Ollie a card, it would mean the world to him. Over the next two weeks, more than 7,000 cards from every populated continent on planet Earth sent cards and gifts and pictures to little Ollie. He ended his 15th birthday in his friend's hot tub with a selfie stick and a phone videoing a message. They've got a picture of it. (laughs) Saying, I'm famous, I'm famous, people care about me. I'm famous, I'm famous, people care about me. You know, when you look at the billion dollar industry that social media has become, it's not because people want to feel connected to people. It's because people want to feel cared about. So we don't just post something, but we go back and see how many times it's been liked, been shared, been commented on. We, deep down, we just want to know that someone cares because people need people who will care about them. You know, as, as I look at the great commandment and I see what it takes to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, I realize that when we live in an intentional pursuit of God, when, when we are trying to really chase God, Our lives always have these elements. Jesus is always at the center. Or he's moving closer to the center. Christians are always in our crew. Even if it's only one or two, we're trying to get some people who will help us when we're down, who will pray for us when we're hurting, who will challenge us when we're drifting. And people are always in our heart. We're just aware of other people and their needs. Even before we know them, we're willing to serve them. And it's funny because when you look at heaven... Like, you know you can know what heaven looks like and even what you do in heaven. Like, the Bible describes what heaven looks like and what you do in heaven. You know what happens in heaven? Jesus is at the center. You're surrounded by Christians. And you care as much about other people as you do yourself. People are in your heart. Like, I'm so confident that that's what heaven heaven is like that I want to say this. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, Jesus at the center, Christians in my crew, people in my heart... Uh, yeah, that's not for me. If that's not for you now, then heaven is not for you. It's what we do there. Like if you say, I, you know, I really don't, I don't want Jesus at the center. I don't want Christians in my crew. I don't want people in my heart. Then you will be miserable in eternity. But Jesus didn't say to wait till eternity to start living for him. Jesus actually said, pray that my kingdom would come and my will would be done on earth the same way it would be done in heaven. Jesus said, pray that you can start living your heavenly life now. Jesus in the center, Christians in your crew, people in your heart. You say, well, how do I start doing that? I don't know. Probably everyone has to start at some place different. Our fourth E, as we look through the New Testament, is this thought of equipping yourself with a spiritual growth plan. Almost every letter of the New Testament was written to a person or a church. 
that was at a different place, so they were all given different steps. So we realize Christianity isn't one size fits all, but people are at different places in their spiritual walk, and their next step looks different. But everyone should be figuring out what's next for them. Our core belief as a church, we've got five, but one of them is spiritual growth. We believe every person has a next step spiritually. Those of you who are brand new and those of you who have been coming for five years. And here's the sad reality of this message today in this church. There are some of you who the whole time that I've been teaching today, you've been thinking, like I already know all that. I know the great commandment. Like I learned that when I was an elementary school Christian. I know the great commandment. Well, does knowing how to eat healthy make you skinny? Or does actually living what you know make the difference? You see, I'm not asking what your head remembers from some Bible lesson. I'm asking what your heart resembles from a, from a pursuit of God. Because none of us in here need another lesson. But some of us need another lifestyle. A lifestyle with Jesus at the center, Christians in our crew, and people in our heart. See, so I'm a pretty mature Christian. You know, I, I do kind of a lot of these things. What's my next step? Well, maybe this year you can get more faithful, more committed and consistent than you've ever been. Maybe you can read your Bible more this year than you've ever read before. Maybe you can start to pray or memorize scripture. Maybe you can start journaling and just kind of talking to God through a journal every day. Maybe if you haven't been on a mission trip yet, you can buy a passport and plan in the next 36 months to get overseas and do the work of God there. Maybe you've got a friend that every time you're with them, you think, man, I wish they would know who Jesus was. It would change their life. And instead of thinking that, you need to say something. Maybe you're like a really mature Christian that... I mean, you've got a lot of great church knowledge, but God's calling you to go to Bible college and start taking some Bible classes or some theology classes. Like, there's a next step for everyone. No one has ever done growing spiritually. There's a next step for everyone. But some of you don't need your next step. You need your first step. 41 people last week that made a decision to become a Christian and start following Jesus. Nine people already today who've made a decision, taken a first step to become a Christian and start following Jesus. She said, man, if I'm just coming back to God, a lot of people at our church, we find, have had some kind of previous connection spiritually. Then for one reason or another, they had a long span where they were just kind of unactive, inactive spiritually, and they've reconnected at our church. So, man, if I'm brand new spiritually or if I'm just getting locked back in spiritually, like what's one thing that I could do to kind of kickstart my spiritual life? Well, we have a class at our church that we call Starting Point. It's actually going to meet during this service, so you'd have to come to the 10 o'clock service. But over four one-hour classes, you kind of say, here's where I am, here's my next step. And, and in one month, you kind of set the course of the next year of your spiritual life. If, if you're brand new spiritually or you're just re-engaging spiritually, man, I would so encourage you to take part in that starting point class. But if you're a step behind that, Maybe you're in here and today was like coming to the zoo. You're just trying to figure out a little more about what Christianity is. But you've heard from the lips of Jesus something that's very attractive to you. Like you thought Christianity was keeping a bunch of rules, but you hear Jesus say it's just loving God and loving people. And that kind of takes care of everything else. And maybe in your spirit you're thinking, if that's what Christianity is, I like actually want that. I'd like to try that. Then maybe today your step, your first step, is to say yes to Jesus. And to commit on this day, September 4th, 2016, that from this day forward for the rest of your life, you're going to try to follow Jesus. You're going to let him be in charge. You're going to let him be the leader. And you're going to try to rearrange your life, rewire your life, to have Jesus at the center, Christians in your crew, 
and people in your heart so that you can fulfill the great commandment in your own life. If you're here today and that's your step, I'd love to pray with you. So would you just bow your head?